strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live from the Calm Radio Studios here on Arunda Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911 on Aiken FM here in Ubuntu Alice Springs and also online at our website at karma.com.au. It is, of course, Wednesday the 5th of June 2019 and I'm sure a lot of people are excited around the country with, uh, I believe, State of Origin coming up tonight. I'm your host, Carl Dowling, and you'll have my company all the way up until 12 o'clock today. Coming up on Strong Voices, uh, five Indigenous students were recently awarded uh, $10,000 as part of the Dr. Tracy Westerman Aboriginal Psychology Scholarship Program, which is going towards uh, assisting in their uh, Bachelor of Psychology Studies at Curtin University in Western Australia. I recently spoke with uh, Dr. Tracy Westerman about the scholarships and the rates of Indigenous suicide that we're seeing here in Australia. Also, the Australian government have announced a package of uh, measures to commemorate the 250th anniversary of uh, Captain James Cook's first Pacific voyage. Australia's oldest public uh, museum is taking a different approach, though, to its presentation. We'll hear about that as well on the program. Also, we're going to be hearing from the Northern Territory Emergency Services ahead of the Fink Long Long Weekend and obviously some very important messages there as we head into the Long Weekend. Also, we're of course going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and uh, Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country as well here on Strong Voices. Hey mob, this is Patrick Johnson and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices this Wednesday morning. We're going to head into our first story now. Five Indigenous students recently became the inaugural recipients of a $10,000 scholarship to assist in their Bachelor of Psychology Studies at Curtin University in Western Australia. The Dr Tracy Westerman Aboriginal Psychology Scholarship Program aims to develop Aboriginal psychologists who have connections to rural and remote Aboriginal communities and will be able to provide specialised support services. A recognised leader in Aboriginal mental health, Dr Tracy Westerman, was named Western Australian of the Year in 2018 and has trained more than 22,000 clinicians in culturally appropriate Indigenous psychological approaches. I recently had the opportunity to sit down and have a chat with Dr Westerman. Here's that conversation now. It's uh, great to have you on Calm Radio. Thank you so much, and thanks so much for having me. 
Well, just first of all, uh, can you start by telling us uh, a little bit about yourself? You know, who you are, your mob, where you're from? Yeah, of course. Um, I hail from the beautiful Pilbara. I was actually up in Alice Springs about two months ago, so I love that red dirt and gum trees. And, of course, we had a bit of rain, so that combination of, of smells <laughs> are very, very um, endearing to me coming from the Pilbara. My traditional mob are actually in Yummel from between Port Hedland and Marble Bar area. I trained as a psychologist and run my own business out of Perth, but work obviously across the whole of Australia for the past 21 years. And your work within that psychology space, what, what got you involved? Why did you want to get involved in that space? Oh, I guess it was pretty obvious. And I always say I came down for, as a young kid. I did school the air or distance education to get into university, so it was quite challenging being so remote. For some reason, I set upon a path that I wanted to become a psychologist at about 15 years of age. I can't necessarily explain that. It's just something that I read about and decided that I wanted to do. So I came down full of beans from remote area studying at the University of Western Australia. And I guess for me, it was fairly shocking that when I was in sitting in lecture theatres, that Aboriginal people were basically invisible in all of the training provided to practitioners and all of the evidence-based treatments. And it just was pretty obvious to me that the training provided to psychologists should actually match the statistics. So we're seeing Aboriginal people having amongst the highest rates of particularly child suicide in the world, as most of your listeners would be aware, and yet you go into training and the training just wasn't matching what most psychologists were dealing with every day. So I guess I had a bit of a fire in my belly and passion for my people, and so I set upon a path to ensure that future practitioners didn't have to experience the invisibility of Aboriginal people in their training. Some exciting news recently with uh, Indigenous student, uh, Indigenous psychologist students are uh, being awarded inaugural scholarships through the Dr Tracy Westerman Aboriginal Psychology Scholarships Program. Can you just start, first of all, by telling us about the actual program itself? Uh, how and why did it come about? Well, I guess um, in 2018, I had a pretty big year. I was West Australia's finalist for the Australian of the Year. And within that, I guess, it gave me a fairly big platform. I've always been very passionate, obviously, about mental health and the escalating rates of of Indigenous child suicide and have self-funded. I don't have a cent of government funding myself, so um, have self-funded unique screening tools for early stages of risk for Aboriginal kids. I guess what I was saying a lot was that, realistically, there was really a a lack of government action on reports that were coming out, and I guess where it was triggered from was the coroner's inquiry, the recent one, into the 13 suicide deaths of beautiful young Indigenous kids in the Kimberley that pretty much pointed to the fact that all of those kids suffered from what was called a systems failure. What actually made it really distressing was that not one of those children of the 13 that died had a mental health assessment. Families for decades have been crying out in remote communities and as most of your listeners would know in Alice Springs is exactly the same. There's just a lack of access to specialist services, psychologists, you know, best practice programs to help their children And the way I put it to people is that imagine having a child caught in a group of mental illness and there are no services to help. And when you do find a service, the cultural barriers between you are so great that any opportunities for healing are effectively lost. So I rang Curtin University literally that day. I'm a graduate from Curtin University. I did my master's and PhD there. And I decided to put my own money into it. So I'd put $50,000 of my own money into starting up the Dr. Tracy Westerman Aboriginal Psychology Scholarship Program, which is basically $10,000 a year for over five years. And the idea behind that is that we'd actually identify Indigenous students studying psychology, but they had to have remote and rural connections like myself. 
But it's what I knew, ultimately, is that when you're from the bush, when you grow up in remoteness, you want to go back there. You want to go back there and help your family and your communities. So, to me, every single report was saying the same thing, crying out for specialist services, crying out for specialist programs. And it became pretty obvious that it was something that could have a really direct and immediate impact on those high-risk communities. And definitely having that want and desire to go back and, and work within those communities is, is a very important aspect in terms of, you know, achieving, wanting to achieve those goals and strive towards those. I guess as well, it's, it's oh, a very important thing in terms of having, you know, the mob themselves actually working within the communities. Yeah, and look, I unfortunately look too many bereaved families in the face and it's a feeling that never leaves you, really. And what I see in the eyes of, I guess, young Indigenous psychologists is that same passion. It's not actually just the money, the psychology scholarship program. I'm actually personally mentoring the recipients as well because it's really tough. You know, as much as we love our communities, being a psychologist and going into the areas where we're from is actually really tough. It can be quite traumatising. And so the scholarship is not... It's about funding, yeah, but it's also about wrapping your arms around these kids so that we don't have a reality that, you know, generational child suicides continue to exist in our remote communities without at least having our best crack at providing these communities with the services that every Australian child should have a right to. Now, w- words such as, you know, national crisis have, have been used when describing the, the rates of Indigenous suicide that we're seeing at the moment. H- how would you describe mm-hmm. those levels that we're seeing amongst the mob, the, those levels of suicide? For me, you know, I don't like using words like crisis because basically what it does is it runs the risk of then normalising suicide. What I'm actually much more interested in is things that we know will actually prevent suicides. The Kimberley tends to have, you know, obviously generational. It's been going for about two or three decades now. But there are also a lot of Aboriginal communities that actually don't have suicides. And so what we haven't done very well is we haven't learnt from those communities who seem to be buffered from uh, suicide risk. And I think if we focus too much on crisis and, and what's actually going wrong, we stop looking at the things that are being effective and provide us with our best opportunities of prevention. So unfortunately, there are significant gaps in what's actually being provided to, again, those high-risk communities. And so risk just remains unabated. And what that means is that we're not actually providing our Indigenous communities with things that the average Australian should actually receive. And that is intervention, early intervention-based programs. They just don't exist in remote communities. So it's no surprise to me, unfortunately, we have generations of suicide. Where the suicides occur, they carry the burden for the rest of Australia almost. So, yes, we do have extremely high rates of suicide, but we need to learn from those communities a bit more that actually don't have suicides or those individuals that come from the Kimberley that don't become suicidal. There's something about resilience there that, that provide a better opportunity for prevention. So, so then there's essentially a role for communities to play in terms of curbing some of these rates then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our work that we do, I guess, um, whole of community intervention programs, is what we do is we skill people up around identifying risk. Early intervention is a really brilliant thing. I mean, Martin Seligman has done a bit of work around this, and I've worked mostly with kids. He's actually shown if we teach kids optimism in, in middle grade, that positivity, optimism, coping skills, coping strategies, effective communication, anger management, problem solving, all those things that we know reduce suicide risk, we can eliminate 50% of depression. So that's what I'm talking about here, that we're not actually, because we're so focused on a deficit model, we're not actually investing any energy or money into prevention programs. And that's, again, the interesting thing about this scholarship is that it's attracted zero dollars in government funding, not one cent. So we've also managed to raise $340,000 in private and corporate 
donations. So this is a great thing about this scholarship. It's like people power has <laughs> sort of spoken and seen the obvious gaps and said, well, this is a bit of a no-brainer in terms of what needs to happen. Definitely great to see that level of you know support and commitment from, from communities yeah. and people. In, in terms of that government support, do you think there's a lack of understanding still in terms of some of the contributing factors then? I'm a clinician. I've worked for 21 years with, you know, at-risk Aboriginal people. Unfortunately, I've worked with so many, you know, suicidal people that you understand the impulse and you understand the mindset. And I think often what people don't understand is, is the complexity of it and how then go about providing communities with a range of different intervention strategies that are going to give us our best opportunity to prevent. So I do often see crisis-driven reactive programs that don't actually have a measurable impact in reducing suicides because government funding doesn't actually require it. Now, you you mentioned, you know, uh, things such as you know, access to support services and things like that in, in, in communities. Uh, oh. What are some of the other major contributing factors that, that you're actually seeing in terms of that are impacting the, the mental health and, and the well-being of the mob? I've done a lot of writing on making the distinction between a cause of suicide and a risk factor for suicide, and it's important distinction to make because it often informs government policy on these issues. So, as an example, we're hearing a lot of things around, you know, alcohol as a cause of suicide. So then what happens is it informs government policy. They restrict alcohol to Indigenous communities, and, of course, there's no reduction in suicide in those alcohol-restricted communities because alcohol is a risk factor. It enables suicide, but you need to have a suicidal impulse first in order to be suicidal, so it's not a cause. So what we know, I guess, is that the suicide death data, which sounds like a terrible term, has literally not been analysed in a way that firmly establishes a causal pathway to suicide. Now... If we don't understand that, then we're actually focusing on the wrong things and we're not arming a workforce up around how to reduce things that we know lead to someone becoming suicidal. And look, my hunch would be that it's trauma, my hunch would be that it's depression, and a big factor that we're seeing with Indigenous people is the impacts of racism. Ian Parody's work, for example, has shown us that 30% of depression is accounted for by racism alone. They're now talking about racism as impacting on Aboriginal people in the same way as a traumatic assault. So these are the sorts of things that I guess, from a clinical perspective, you then go, okay, we know that individuals who become more suicidal feel the impacts of racism at a greater level. Then from a clinical perspective, I get in there and I teach people to, you know, develop cognitions and and other strategies around managing racist events. Now, obviously, this year alone has has been a very concerning year in terms of, you know, mob taking their lives. Uh, Are you Um, optimistic moving forward in terms of uh, us addressing these rates? Look, yeah, I am. I'm I'm optimistic mostly because I think probably one of the good things within the, the emergence, I guess, of Indigenous media has been fantastic is that, like I said, the mob are actually really interested in it. I'm writing a lot of opinion pieces mostly because I'm seeing that people are saying it's really helpful, Trace, to actually have the words and and the technical understanding of these things because then they can advocate for their family member or they understand a little bit better. They know, you know, what to do and where to go. The trouble is, though, is that there just seems to be an unconscious bias. I mean, you fellas know in Alice Springs, I'm from the Pilgrim myself, most of the programs and services that are available around prevention and early intervention are all city-based. So I think once we actually 
you know, address that as an issue and make sure these programs are mobilised where they need to be, then that's also part of them on being able to see that and advocate for what, what type of services and where they need to be. And I think that's part of the whole, being able to listen to people writing on this stuff and people directing them accordingly. And just finally for you, what, what are your aspirations then for, for this scholarship program moving forward? <laughs> it's, it's just, I'm so proud of it. We were only going to announce one scholarship the other night and we ended up announcing five. Look, that's a contribution just by itself. I was just so blown away. To be honest with you, I I want this to be national. I want us to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Indigenous psychologists in remote communities. Currently, it's in Curtin University in Western Australia. We've got five this year. I'm not going to stop there. If anyone from Alice Springs is, is keen to start the Dr Tracy Westerman Aboriginal Psychology Scholarship Program up there, I'd be keen to speak to people about that. I was in Sojourner last week and people were keen on it as well. So I think you put it some, put something real simple. How awesome would it be to have a homegrown Indigenous psychologist from Alice Springs or from you know one of your remote communities around the Northern Territory? The pride of that is just pretty incredible, isn't it? Definitely. Uh, for, for those who, who do want to get involved then, how can they go uh, about that process? The best way to do it is to speak to um, Ashley Marshall at um, Curtin University Scholarships Office. She's wonderful. So they have been absolutely great. And for people who just want to donate, I mean, I think the great thing about this, we had someone donate $250,000 to this scholarship, seriously. And then we've also had someone who's donating 20 bucks a month out of his pension. That's the great thing about this scholarship is that you can put a dollar into it and you can feel as if you're making an actual difference to future generations of Indigenous kids. Every single dollar makes an impact. $10,000 is an annual scholarship, which is a good scholarship, but the reality of it is is that we need to have financial barriers removed if we're able to get as many Indigenous psychologists as we need. But you can also Google just Tracy Westerman Scholarship and then the links to where you can donate using a credit card or whatever is there. Go straight to Curtin University. That was uh, Dr. Tracy Westerman there. Also, if you do require support, you can call Lifeline on uh, 13 11 14. That number again is 13 11 14. We're going to be going to a quick break now, but make sure you stick around because we're going to be going to the Aboriginal and uh, Torres Strait Islander news from across the country very soon. Hi, this is Pam from Karma, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio this Wednesday morning. Now it's time for the Aboriginal and uh, Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. I'm very happy to welcome into the studio Karma's Paul Wiles and Lorena Walker. Thanks for joining us. Hey, good morning, Carl. <laughs> good morning, Carl. Well, Paul, we'll start with you. I understand, uh, you know, we've talked about it a couple of times on the newsroom in the country. It's still a growing story. The well, national anthem yeah, in, the, the- in the NRL. Uh, very much, and uh, of course uh, tonight is the first state of origin, but the former chair of the Australian Lug- Rugby League Indigenous Council, Linda Burney, has urged the NRL to have the national anthem sung in both an Aboriginal language and English before state of origin matches and the grand final. So uh, the uh, Uh, Federal politician and shadow minister for Indigenous Affairs, Linda Burney, um, stepped down as head of the Code's Indigenous Advisory Group late last year. Uh, She's uh, in the media, in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald. Um, She's saying that the move will be a step in the right direction. 
New South Wales stars uh, Cody Walker, Latrell Mitchell and uh, Josh Adokar have been joined by Queensland's Will, Will Chambers in voicing their opposition to the Advanced Australia Fair lyrics, which they say does not represent their people. Uh, they will not sing the words before the State of Origin series openers at Suncorp Stadium tonight and the entire Indigenous All-Stars team waged a uh, similarly respectful and silent protest before the pre-season fixture against the Maori All-Stars this season. So um, the debate, and it will be very interesting to see tonight's State of Origin, uh, what reaction, more so from the crowd, I think, how they react to um, what these uh, guys are going, going to do. And uh, it's a big call. Yeah, we have seen, uh, I have noted over the past couple of days or so, we have seen some articles criticising the players for choosing not to do that and sort of, you know, people saying, you know, there's other sort of ways they could be going about this process or, or you know, shouldn't be politicising the game and things like that. Uh it would be interesting, Lorena brought up an interesting point earlier, though, uh, in terms of Indigenous languages, which language they would have to pick. Yes, and as you quite <laughs> rightly suggested, uh, you would presume it would be the language of the land that uh, the game was being played on. Mm. Um, but um, as we know, there are many nations within Australia, uh, many Aboriginal languages, uh, many countries, and uh, um, choosing one one language group to be representative of the whole nation um, it's a bit like taking the vote for advanced Australia fair, uh, I mean that went on for years and years and years before they finally uh, agreed on advanced Australia fair as the national anthem, I mean there was uh, Waltzing Matilda and um, other other songs, more uh, popular songs that um, you know were, were uh, um, more popular and and um, but the country did vote on that. Um, be interesting to see what the mob would do. Yeah. Mm. Well, on to you now, Lorena. What do you have for us this morning? Uh, yeah, so over to Labor Senator Pat Dodson. He's urging the coalition government to deal with Indigenous voice to Parliament and referendum. So another big. Um, you know, mention when it comes to the the new government and a lot of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within the government are urging that or pushing forward um, to get those voices heard in, in government. So, yeah, we'll see where now where that will take us. Yeah, and I did have the opportunity to speak with... Um uh, Barbara Shaw here from Alice Springs recently, who's from the you know Uluru Statement Working Group, uh, Uluru Statement from the Heart Working Group, I should say, and you know part of their whole process is actually pushing those messages and continuing that you know what came out of the actual Uluru Statement from the Heart and you know what actually came from their meeting that they had in uh, I believe it was Cairns off the top of my head. Yes, yeah. um, was that people are still very optimistic moving forward. You know, we have seen talks about treaties in specific areas, such as the Northern Territory in Victoria. Um, you know, we have seen at least, you know, politicians talking about the voice to parliament and things like that. What should, what sort of shape that takes, time will tell. And, and what sort of, you know, input we get from the mob in terms of how that shape looks, we'll, we'll have to see. But... Yeah, definitely very. Well, it, yeah. It's a work in progress, and uh, um, as we know, with uh, the journey towards reconciliation, uh, it's a, a very slow journey. Mm. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, Lorena, Paul, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country.
Thank you. Thank you. G'day, folks. This is Kutcher Edwards, and you're listening to our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices. I'm Kyle Darling, your host for the program. Great to have your company this uh, Wednesday morning. Well, uh, as we know, it is the Fink Long Weekend, and it is, while it is a time for enjoyment and, and often coming together, uh, it is important to remember to stay safe during the long weekend. Karma's Lorena Walker recently spoke with Gerard uh, Lessels from the uh, Anti-Emergency Services about safety messages in the lead-up to the Fink Long Weekend and also about road safety and what important steps people should take. Firstly, I would like to welcome onto the Karma Network, Jared from the NT Emergency Service. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Jared. And can you just tell the listeners um, a little bit about yourself? Um, how long have you been working at the NT Emergency Service? I've been a, an area manager for over a year now. I was also doing a project officer uh, for the Southern Region and Community Resilience. And I'm also being a Northern Territory Emergency Services volunteer out at Hermansburg and Durry for about nine years now. Been working with some of the, the rangers that we know out there as well, hey? Absolutely. The women rangers, Twumper women rangers, um, have been part of NTES and emergency services for a long time now. Can you just tell us the importance of knowing some of the dangers of going out on country and walking out on country, bushwalking, and even for those tourists that may be tuning in as well? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Look, the, it's, it's considered that we're always very hot in central Australia, but we do get down to the cold. Um, we get down into the minus. The cold can be just as a formidable force as the, as the heat and be just an adverse effect on us. So some of the things we need to be aware of is, one, the cold, especially if we're camping out overnight. We also need to realise that there are also snakes around and spiders and scorpions which like to get into our swags maybe a little bit. But probably a couple of things we need to remember is about overcommitting to a walk. Sort of, are we fit enough to do that walk? You know, and... We're lucky in in our parks and our reserves here. The Parks and Wildlife have got signs up that says this particular walk will will take two hours or one hour or whatever. Just be aware that, you know, while that's at a leisurely pace, we do quite often get distracted looking at all the beautiful scenery Mm -hmm. and if we're not as fit as we thought, we work and actually take us a bit longer. So it's not going to go anywhere. The scenery is going to be there tomorrow, so it doesn't matter if we have a look a little bit today and then we come back tomorrow and have a look at the rest. Yeah, something else that's coming up this weekend is the long weekend the Fink weekend there's a lot of people travelling out there on roads and so do you have any messages for this coming weekend? Absolutely look you know we're, we're all different in our camping requirements you know we need to take a bit of a first aid kit plenty of water because in the cold we still get dehydrated even though we don't realise it so we can run into medical problems there we need to take a little bit of food and Maybe some communications. I know down the Fink there, they actually have some public open channels down there. But probably one of the most important things is that we take some rubbish bags with us and respect yeah. country. We've got to also respect the, the pastoral holders there that have cattle out on that country because mm-hmm. the cattle eat the rubbish and then uh, subject to, to quite a, a, a painful um, end as the plastic and all that gets into their tummies. So it's about respecting country, respecting other people. The dust level is going to be very, very high as we all know. So we need to also slow down a little bit and just take it a little bit easier. What do, like if I want to go out, what do I need to take with me when just say I want to go do the walk at uh, Ormiston Gorge or something like that? Well, I suppose probably number one is to make sure we're appropriately dressed. Make sure we've got a long sleeve shirt on, we've got long pants, we've got a set of decent comfortable walking shoes. Take our medication, you know, if we're diabetic or something 
some other medical reason we need to take medicine, make sure we've got it for us because sometimes we leave it at home and forget it, which can cause a lot of troubles. Need to take some water. We need to also maybe take a companion. It's great to be out there on our own and, and all that sort of thing, but if we get in trouble, we need someone to be there to help us out of that spot. An EPIRB or a spot tracker. You know, these are things now that are quite cheap and they can save our life very, very quickly. So if we get into a, a critical situation, we can hit the button and you register it through and then they notify emergency services and um, we can hopefully come and find you, yeah. What do you think are appropriate times as well to go bushwalking? In, in the summer, obviously, it's that morning and that evening. Winter's probably a little bit more trickier. Of course, it's very cold in the morning, so we rug up. Yep. And then during the middle of the day, while we're actually walking, we, we start to get very hot. We don't like to carry our coat in our arms, so we leave it on our back. So we're actually dehydrating a lot quicker than, than we think. You know, morning and evening, it's still very pleasant to walk. But again, just be aware, in the middle of the day, it can still warm up here. I have a question for you. Um, for those people that may go out to the Telegraph station, there's quite a lot of dingoes out and about. So what are some of the safe ways to warn them off? Yeah, look, if, if you're just doing your normal thing, talking and all that, dingoes tend to want to stay stay clear of us. They're wild animals. They don't want to be confrontational. But probably the most important things we need to remember is that we don't feed them. If they get used to being fed by hand, then they start to rely on that. And then the more they rely on that, the more cheeky they get. And then if someone gets bit, quite often the end result is that that poor dingo, through no fault of his own, has to now be put down. So yeah. we don't want that to happen to our native wildlife. Yeah, again, pick up your rubbish, take it home with you. Mm -hmm. Don't feed the wildlife. They've been doing it with, um, without our white bread and our lollies they don't need it now. The weather's changing and it's getting a lot cooler. For those tourists that may come in from you know overseas and still think that it's summer in the June, July here, what message would you have for them? Look, it's a really important point. You know, most of us now have internet access on our phones. Uh, so if you go through to the Bureau of Meteorology, when you come up onto that site, it'll tell you all the information you need. The high temperatures, the low temperatures, the winds, the speeds, the chill factors, whether it's going to rain or storms likely. So all of that information, including warnings, if there's any um, storm warnings, can be at that one site. The places we can go is by the new local newspaper. Yeah. Um, tune into to Karma Radio. Get it on the news. So there's quite a few places we can go and also ask the local people you know someone that's been at the caravan park or the motel for a long period of time your tourist driver in the bus whatever quite often they've been here long enough to know the rough pattern while it's not definitive it'll give you a little bit of an idea to decide whether you should go for a walk or not if you're out there traveling and you get stuck out on the road what is the next step for people to do if they do get stuck if they're traveling from community if they're on the north or south road what should we do um if, if that occurs. Yep. Look, really good point because we have had some incidents like this which has very been very tragic endings. There's a couple of things. Number one, don't panic. Stay with your vehicle. It's the most important thing because if you stay with your vehicle, if we do get deployed to look for you, mm -hmm. we can pick you up 
from a helicopter or a plane by sight a lot easier if you're with your vehicle. It's a lot easier just to see a car than it is to see an individual person sitting under a tree. Number two, make sure you've got plenty of water. This is absolutely critical. Plenty of water, a little bit of food. Make sure you tell someone. It, you know, it could be the caravan park owner, it could be the motel owner, it could be the police if you're going really remote. It could be parks and wildlife if you, you, you're going out on their country. Tell someone, we all know someone. Tell them who's going, how many people, where we're going to, when we think we're going to get there, and then when we think we're going to come back. So that if that goes awry and we don't make it back because we've been delayed for whatever, then at least the person you told can come to the police and say, listen, this is possibly where they are. They're, they're running late. It's a big country out there. And if we can get some idea of what road you're on and where you were going, it makes our response a lot quicker. That's right. And like you said, the response is a lot quicker. And it's just that that one thing that could could help you if you do get stuck out there for those listening how can we contact you or where can we get information for life-threatening issues we've got triple zero for police assistance it's 131444 for storm and flood which is the ses 132500 most importantly of all i can't stress it enough is if you do break down or even if you're walking and you think you are lost stay put are there any important messages that you would like to put out there to our audience over this weekend long weekend coming we've got a lot of tourists coming into town people are also very interested in the the fink desert race community members still have to come in from our communities to do their shopping and and everything else Mm -hmm. so if we can all just have a little bit of patience slow down a little bit visibility on the on that track is is very low because of the dust pay a bit of attention to the volunteers in orange that are on the the road crossings we're there to help you make sure that you cross the track safely if we could all just have a little bit of patience a little bit of manners and respect each other it'll go a long way to a very safe and enjoyable weekend yeah that's right and also like you mentioned earlier respecting the country as well absolutely priority number one yeah i just want to say a huge thank you for taking the time out today and joining us here on the karma network Absolutely. Thank you very, very much. You listen to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Bam! That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices. We're heading into our final story now. Uh, Captain James Cook's exploration of the Pacific Ocean has left a profound legacy of scientific investigation. To commemorate the 250th anniversary of the voyage and acknowledge Cook's uh, interactions with Indigenous people, uh, funding is being provided to support a range of uh, reflective exhibitions, activities and events to be delivered by the National Library of Australia, the Australian National Maritime Museum and uh, National Museum of Australia, as well as uh, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. Mariko Smith, uh, Assistant Curator uh, First Nations at uh, Australia's oldest museum, the Australian Museum in Sydney, recently spoke with uh, Karma's Paul Wiles. I'm from the Ewan Nation on the south coast of New South Wales with my dad's family and my mum's family is Japanese so it's been really great learning a lot about my culture through my work in the museum and also the academic sector here in Sydney. The issues surrounding the Captain James Cook celebration across the country for the First Nations peoples, uh, uh, this is a a long-running story that really hasn't had their input and they haven't been able to express in such a way that the government has noticed. Now, for the white fellows of this country, it's a significant uh, commemoration coming up, and there's 
large amounts of government money, taxpayer money, that's been put into this. And uh, all Australians perhaps should have some say in how much money and uh, what it's spent on. That's right. I I know that there are a number of cultural institutions are holding programming and exhibitions to commemorate the um, Cook anniversary in 2020. And we felt, um, myself and also the uh, First Nations curator, Laura McBride, who's a whale wine woman, from um, New South Wales, we particularly felt that Aboriginal perspectives and opinions on the events of 1770, so when Cook landed in Kamei, which is now known as Botany Bay, on the 29th of April 1770, and also when he claimed possession of the eastern coast on the 22nd of August 1770 up at Possession Island, we felt that these have been overshadowed by the accounts of the uh, brave pioneering explorers from the tall ships who helped so-called build modern Australia. So we felt that it was really important for a First Nations right of reply to cook in those events. Being able to relate to the ships and the crew and what was going on, perhaps it was all rather confusing in the beginning. Yes, and I think it would have been very confronting and frightening. I mean, we're particularly interested in, as you could call it, the view from the shore and uh, seeing what it might have, you know, what it might have been like to have that first contact experience. So that is one aspect that we're interested in exploring through this exhibition that we're currently calling the 2020 Project as a working title. And we're particularly interested with what that sort of interaction or first contact may have been like. We're really interested to see how much of a role Cook may actually end up playing in this exhibition. That's the question. There has been and there will be large amounts of government money put into events across the country. When we look at the learning curve of... uh, Australian society, particularly in the last two decades, we've seen a much better understanding from the wider non-Indigenous community about how the First Nations may actually feel about all this. Yeah, I mean, the last couple of decades, I think there is a growing awareness and appreciation of um, others' points of view. And that is something that we've done community consultation for the 2020 project. And we recently released our um, community consultation report and very strong numbers of respondents being wanting to privilege First Nations perspectives and experiences and they want to know it from our point of view and um, and our stories and to particularly just get to the truth of why colonisation happened in Australia and the truth about Australia's foundation. The course of history changed for two nations. One, the colonisers, they had a bit more land to play with, but for the First Nations peoples, it wasn't a good time and it hasn't been a good time. So, again, when people start getting excited about this celebration of Captain Cook and everything that came along with it, there is another big story from the other side. And other uh, large institutions, I'd imagine, would be running some sort of historical record of the events of that uh, particular day that Cook landed and going up and down the East Coast and meeting and engaging with the First Nations. How can truth in storytelling help educate all Australians about a different story? Yeah, that is a really interesting question. Museums hold a very special place in teaching knowledge about the world and in the, particularly with a place like the Australian Museum, it's the oldest public museum in Australia, founded in 1827, come to really represent what we would say is like a colonial institution and uh, First Nations peoples have had historically 
an uncomfortable relationship with institutions such as the Australian Museum. And so when we did our community consultation, one of our questions was about what do First Nations respondents think about the Australian Museum? And, you know, we got a lot of responses about what they thought in regards to the sandstone building that can feel an uncomfortable place to be in. But at the same time, we could see the potential in the knowledge and the storytelling that this place could really help with. And the museum is offering this opportunity for the 2020 project as a platform for First Nations people to take precedence in telling their story from their perspective. So I think this is going to be really groundbreaking and um, just a really powerful in Australia's museological landscape and also, yeah, for First Nations people, definitely, in the community. It's interesting uh, that most of the institutions that carry the colonial history of this uh, nation up until recently have had a very one-sided view of of history. And uh, this is an ongoing conversation about truth and storytelling and letting uh, letting school children today know the real story and understanding... uh, that things happened, massacres happened, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander peoples were pushed off their land uh, to make room for the colonisers. So if that hadn't have happened, it would have been a very, very different story. Who knows what the story would have been, but at least taking on board the views of the First Nations today and allowing them to have some say and input, it's a significant step. Well, especially since it's meant to be a First Nations-led right of reply, and, I mean, the, the first step has to be going to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people directly to ask them in the first instance. And that's not a typical way, I mean, in terms of exhibition development. Community consultation sometimes doesn't happen in the show until much later in the development process when arguably the themes and topics have already been picked out. But for Laura and I, it was really important to ask community first and foremost. And their feedback in the community consultation survey is actually informing us on what the objectives and the themes and topics of the show are going to be. So we're still working our way through that data. So it's very exciting. And um, we could already tell from what we've been reviewing that community want truth-telling. They want stories told from their perspectives, First Nations experiences and stories, and um, also to address the misrepresentation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through the media, through the education system, the fact that children have been taught for generations about Cook in a particular way that paints him in this particular sort of positive light where he actually means very different things to First Nations people, and it's more critical than celebratory. The Australian Museum is looking to run this exhibition second half of 2020 next year and we are releasing our community consultation report so we're looking at getting that publicly released and keep an eye out and um, we look forward to community learning more about the show and hopefully being a part of it too. On that note, Sir Mariko Smith, many, many thanks for joining us. We will watch on with great interest. Thank you very much, Paul. That was uh, Mariko Smith there, an assistant curator at uh, Australia's oldest museum, the Australian Museum in Sydney, speaking with Karma's Paul Wiles. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for this morning. Thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed the program. We'll, of course, be back the same time tomorrow from 11 till 12. Strong Voices. Good job.